Hello, I'm Kieran Hanrahan and I'm coming to you from the Oliver St. Gogarty pub in Temple Bar in Dublin. I hope that if you were letting it rip a little last night that you're not feeling too tender today. This is part two of a very special tribute to the legendary Edward, who passed away sadly on October the 13th of this year. In 1981, Ed founded the Milwaukee Irish Fest, the world's largest Irish music festival. He gave so much of himself to Irish music and culture that we are forever grateful. We would like to extend our fullest condolences to his wife, Cathy, and his family. We know that this is a very tough time for you all, and we do hope that remembering Ed in these special ways helps to ease your immense pain. Ed's entire family and everyone involved with the Milwaukee Irish Fest are part of our extended Tradfest family too, and we do mourn Ed's passing with you. He was a gentleman. The Milwaukee Irish Fest has grown into a year-round celebration and promotion of our culture with the establishment of the Milwaukee Irish Fest Foundation and the John J. Ward Irish Music Archives. An entire generation of Irish musicians, singers and dancers would not be where they are today without the benefits they have gained from what Ed started. It was my pleasure to speak to Ed at the Ward Irish Music Archives in October 2018. And in the first part of that interview, we heard Ed's own story and how that led to the foundation of the Milwaukee Irish Fest. Today, we begin by hearing about what happened next as more elements were added. Anyway... We, we're we're getting off into these stories well, not, again. Actually, no, this is what I want to hear, some of those special moments for you, certainly, at uh, Milwaukee Irish Fest. Now, OK, the first year we've discussed, and then it, it began to evolve from there. You mentioned the summer school. There are other elements that you've added to the festival in yeah. the last 25 years. Right, right. Well, the summer school um, was uh, developed uh, with the planning of Cecilia Grinwald, and Cecilia, in the early years of the festival, Cecilia was in charge of our roaming performers around the grounds. That were, they were going around and singing ballad, ballads and, and doing magic, doing, um, you know, acrobatic things. And so she was very interested in uh, the music. And so we said, well, let's go to University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and see if they'll host a summer school for us. She organized that whole thing and brought in, um, there was a band from Texas who was playing and she brought them in kind of as the core band, and um, and then we brought it. Same thing, same same format: lectures, dance, music lessons. Um, so real broad array of offerings, and uh, and that was very successful. And it was at UWM, started in '87, and it just grew and grew and grew. And then uh, again, you see, the, the summer school is kind of the crown jewel because that's where you really immerse yourself in the culture. Either you're interested in history or you're interested in archaeology, uh, you're interested in the kids' children's program. Sholin did a, did, a, did a children's program this year. The director of the summer school had her grandchildren there. She said they've never shown any interest in Irish culture at all, but after the, spending three days with these guys, they were at every one of their shows <laughs> at the festival. So that's, that's kind of where our farm team is, that's kind of where the crown jewel is, where the real immersion starts. And so that's been very successful, and uh, it's not as well attended now as it used to be, but now we host it right here in the building. Mm -hmm. But it used to be at UWM on the uh, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, then we moved it to the Milwaukee School of Engineering about six years ago, 
And so, you know, it's costly, you know, regretting all those. And where did those students come from? The students came from all over. The one thing that happened with Irish Fest, and this also goes to the actual formation of the archives a number of years later, but because our festival, I mean, we ran a festival. We had three main stages, a harp stage, a kid's stage, cultural tent, a dart, we had a darters tournament, we had a tug of war. This is stuff all going on at our first festival. We had 45,000 people here now. There's a lot of festivals in their 20th year and never had that many people. But it, part of it was the facility. You know, it was a festival site. So the reputation got started getting around and lo and behold, after three or four years, we got all these LPs being sent to us and all, and so we started when when I booked, uh, there's a band called Schooner Fair, who were very close to Tommy and Liam over the years. And I was up at the Joseph Howe Festival in 1982 in Halifax. So when I'm up there, um, first of all I do is I like look for a record store. <laughs> and I want to go in and I want to find out, all, all, I want to buy all the local musicians that are in there and stock. So I did. I bought a band, I bought a record called Schooner Fair. It had four guys in it. And I, um, and I bought a whole bunch of 45s and LPs and brought them back. Um, and then I, I was there, I was listening to all the music in Nova Scotia, and uh, all of, that was not a necessarily an Irish thing. It was, a, it was a music festival, but not geared to Celtic or Irish. It was basically any genre, you know, at the time. So I brought this, this and Ryan's Fancy. That's why I picked up the first Ryan Fancy. Corey's. That's why I picked up the first Corey album. All this stuff was sitting there. I'm going, whoa, hey, this stuff I never heard. The one album I brought back from Schooner Fair, I put it on, I'm going, oh my God, this is great stuff. They write their own songs and they do some Irish stuff and they're Romanoff. Their name is Romanoff. You know, Chuck and Steven and Tom Rowe. And, uh, um, and so, wow. So I called them and I got their agent, a guy named Tom Power. I said, who are these guys and do they travel? And they came and they were kind of a, they were, you know, they didn't do everything Irish, but they were folk, enough Irish. And they were huge, huge. And they got to be very close to Tom, Tommy and Liam. One of the best concerts I ever saw, and we have actually an audio recording of it. And we might even have a video recording of a good part of it. It's on the old PAP stage at Milwaukee and it's Tommy and Liam Chuck Romanoff, Steve Romanoff, and Tom Rowe. And one of the best versions I've ever heard of Four Green Fields was the version Tommy did that night. And, uh, but these guys became very, very popular. So they became like Tommy and Liam in the early years. They were there every year for six, seven years, you know. And this is what happened when all these bands started getting together and they got to know each other and they have similar interests and they're singing at the hotel at night and there's a big session in the Park East which you guys stayed at, and that was wild, you know. Um, and so the controversy over, over rock, because you guys were the first really, Stockton's Wing was the first real Irish rock band that we booked. And some people said, well, we, there's no room for that at Irish Fest because it's not Irish music, it's rock music. I said, well, we, don't, we think we need to have this kind of music, number one, because they're very popular. And number two, people really like the music. And there's a lot of people that are going to like this. And so you guys played at what was the old style stage at the time. Sure. And you were a huge hit. 
You're a huge hit. It's the first instance we had of anybody throwing underwear up onto the stage. Uh, do you remember that? You do? Okay, all right. So that was, that's, that was a classic. And the problem is you, got, you played a couple years there, and then the problem is that was a hangout of all the Chicago policemen and firemen. And they were always fighting with one another. So we had to put a lot of our security people down on that end of the grounds in the early years because we'd always have eight to ten arrests. You know, and you guys are so popular, the crowds are so big that somebody's going to push somebody or they're going to stand on a bleacher and somebody's going to get pissed off. And so, so in order to preserve the rock and to keep the peace in the organization, we decide we're going to continue to do rock music, but we're going to move it way up to the north end of the grounds, which is where it is today. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, but you guys were, you guys were basically the, the whole genesis of our um, booking that style of music because you were so popular and wild and good. I have to say, there's I've learned something myself today. I've learned a lot actually, but I hadn't. I've learned a bit about ourselves in Stockton's Wing. I hadn't realised that we caused such trouble with the with the police down there on the old style yeah, stage. Yeah, well, you didn't cause it. It's <laughs> the day people that drank too much caused it. And, but you, but the point is, the crowds were so big, yeah. and when you get that many people in an audience, somebody you know somebody's going to get. If they're drinking, they're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. But we had people there. It's just that we didn't like to see that stuff reported, mm. you know, in the paper. And and uh, and they were very judicious about, you know, protecting our reputation. But anyway, so it went up to the north end. And we have, I don't, I, I don't even know when the last arrest we've had on our grounds. Sometimes we walk people off the grounds. But those were magic days, I'm telling you. Those are magic days. And, and we, we on stage that, at uh, um, an old style the same year the Chieftains were here? No, oh, we weren't that okay. year, no. Okay, because they came in 82 and they came a couple times. And they were, they were huge. They went over very well. But the thing is, we had lots. If you didn't like something or didn't like the music, you could get up and walk somewhere else. And it could be a small stage on the lakefront of Our Lady or, uh, so, or people playing the harp and singing. And, and that continues today where some of the, obviously the big stages are packed, but you have enough small venues that you can go here. When Andy Irving and Don Lenny were here a couple of years ago, we had them in the, in the uh, village pub. There maybe that fits maybe 150 people seated, but you probably get 300 people crowded around. Perfect for them, you know, because sometimes, you know, even people like that, even though they're legends, you put them out in front of 6,000 people and maybe it doesn't have the same intimacy, the same magic. Now, one thing that you have developed, and I've seen it myself because of the relationship, let's say, with Tradfest, but you developed, maybe you always did it, but you look for the up-and-coming bands, you look for the bands maybe that mightn't even be known here, That's right, yeah. you introduce them here to the United but States. But we've always done that. That's been a tradition since our early years. And we started that, first of all, it started by us being distributors for the two main Irish record labels in the United States. And so, and as we learned that, we learned more people. We learned about the agents. We learned about the distributors. I mean, look, Dan Collins is a ton of, I mean, he's a, you know, I mean, that guy knows more about Irish music than any kind of music, actually. He's got one of the biggest music collections, too. But, but we were getting exposed to people in the industry because when it, when it comes down to it, and I've always believed this, and I think Walt Disney did too. It's a people business. Contacts, networking, people, and uh, telling your story and get people to trust you and uh, know you're legitimate. 
And the same thing with trying to recruit volunteers because volunteers want to be involved with an event that's fun, that's successful, that's well run, that knows their mission, and that's financially solvent, you know. And, uh, and so we had, I mean, this was stuff that we all had to worry about because, um, because most of the volunteers we get were word of mouth. It's people inviting their friends to come and volunteer. We had 300 the first year, now we have 40, I don't know, Mike just did a count, 40, oh, a little over 4,400 um, that that's on our actual list, that's on Mercado. The other organizations that basically spun off so the summer school spun off and was taken under um, C. Squinwald, and then we had our first local band that really, um, under the direction of Christina Paris, who undertook herself to bring Noel Rice and musicians from Chicago up to teach here. And that kind of blossomed. They just celebrated their 30th year this year at the festival. And this, they're third generation musicians now playing in that uh, because of them and what they did and what they started. And uh, of course, many, many other bands. So the summer school started in 87. And then we started in 1992. That's when Jane Anderson, Mariato, and Jane Walrath and I went to Ireland. They went out to talk to people one morning and I had set up a meeting with Tommy Makeham's agent um, and to go over and talk to him and then go visit Nicholas. And so... That's Nicholas Carlin in the Nicholas Carlin, I, I should, yeah, Nicholas Carlin. And, and so I went over there and I marched up the three flights of stairs at Marion Square. Nicholas was tied up. And as I was walking through the little out, out room there where they had all of their library stored, that's when I came upon my grandfather's books around the shelf. And it was kind of, like I said, a divine providential lightning bolt and I'm going, Here's my grandfather's books in Ireland, Dublin, Ireland, on the shelf of the Irish Tradition Music Archives. And it was Harry that got me to go there in the first place, Harry Bradshaw. If it weren't for Harry, I don't know if I would have made the, gone over anyway. But, and so I'm sitting with these books in my hand. I open the, the cover of the book, and my grandfather's writing in an inscription. I think, it, I'm not sure, it was, it was probably Kieran McMahon, I'm not sure who it was. But Seamus. It was, you think it was Seamus? Okay, Seamus. Yeah, we th I think we determined it was probably Seamus. And my grandfather would do that when we were licking stamps when we were kids. He was sending out books all over the country to Irish-American singers. Um, and, um, and so I said, if my grandfather's books are on a shelf here in Dublin, Ireland, if somebody wanted access to those books in America, where would they find them? They wouldn't. They were all in our family and within our family. Although my uncle had a booth at Irish Fest in the early years and he had some of the reprinted songbooks, he was selling them uh, there. Um, and uh, so I came back and I wrote up a proposal for the board. Now remember, this was in 1992 and all that time we had tons of music coming to us for people that wanted to play here. So we were building up a collection of LPs, cassettes, a video um, um, kits, PR kits, photos, you know, the early stuff. And so we had all this stuff and we were just filing it away. And so I said, look, this, this, this stuff's going to have a value someday. And 
Uh, my grandfather's books are a good example, but they really are in Ireland. And so I wrote a proposal that we would start an archives where we would continue to collect as much as we can. And we would focus on not only Ireland, Irish musicians, dance and culture, but we would also focus on Irish America. That's our heritage, which they decided, okay, we'll do this. And um, so I started, once they agreed to do it, um, we didn't have this building. We had a little office, so everything we were collecting, we were telling people, well, don't throw away your records, we want your records. And we had all the stuff we'd collected was all downstairs in a basement at this little office we had on 84th Street. And so what I started doing as we started collecting this, we had a president of the festival by the name of Ann Kearns who married a guy from Cleveland. Brendan Comer. Brendan Comer's dad, Michael, ran a radio show in Cleveland in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. He ran it from a downtown station in the early 50s and 60s, but then it became less popular, and then he built a studio in his basement. So Brendan Comer decided, he's married this former president of our festival, and we, taught, we knew about those archives we had and were starting. And so this is already 98. We had bought the building late 98, and we had earmarked this, this particular floor for our collections. And so Brendan came in, said we had made the pitch to him, this is what we're doing, this is what we have. In the meantime, I started going out and collecting old 78s. I started buying jukeboxes. I started collecting anything I could find. And um, so I was purchasing the stuff that I donated you know, to, to the archives. So we were able to show them something that we were making going forward. We had photos, we had records, we had a reputation as a festival that was very good. He, they knew us, they knew we were, you know, serious about our music and our promotion of cultures and, and uh, you know, wanting to leave a blood, you know, legacy in the bloodstream of our young, of our young. And so we went and talked to his mom and dad. Oh, his dad passed away. Dad had passed away, and they had all this stuff in their basement, 6,000 items, recordings, 7-inch um, uh, tapes, cassettes. So they said, okay, we'll give you this collection. So we went and we picked it up and brought it back, and that was 6,000. That was our core collection. That's when I got really serious about adding stuff we didn't have. I started picking up 78s. We started, and we were building our connections all the while with people who were in the music. Um, we started picking up albums and LPs, and uh, and I was buying, building my own personal collection at the time too. Um, and so I had a large collection by the time all, all we moved in here of 70, of 45s, um, and I had a large collection of LPs, most of which I brought over here, but I kept I kept maybe about 50 of them at home, um, just in my personal collection. So all this was going on, and once the Comer collection was here, we had a place to house it, we had a place to show it. Then the sheet music thing started, and I was um, and I started collecting sheet music because I have one of the top sheet music collections of non-Irish stuff in the country right now, and especially turn of the century Broadway shows and uh, movies, movie stuff. But and the reason is I went in, I'm looking for Irish sheet music, and I'd see a box of stuff, and I'd say, I'm not going to just buy three pieces. How much do you want for the whole box? You know, otherwise they're going to. So that's how I made, got my personal collection. Same thing with records. 
And so that's how the collection was built. But then as Barry was a volunteer, Barry came in, I can't remember what year Barry came in as a volunteer, but he was a volunteer for a number of years before we actually hired him. Um, and I was up here all the time and we were promoting it and trying to uh, build the collections. We, the early years we were just building the collection. We weren't doing much in the, in the way of uh, education. We didn't start doing the, the on the road stuff till after we had, um, well I would say we started doing the on the road stuff where we'd take exhibits out to the other festivals that would have been maybe a year in 2000. We've been maybe doing that for 15 years or more, you know. Uh, you mentioned Barry, of course, that's Barry Stapleton, who's here at the archive, right. and uh, he's promised me a tour of the archive, which I, I do look forward to. I just want to go back to the festival, and I, I know and I really appreciate the amount of time you've given me here. I'm enjoying your, yeah. your musings and, and your rambling. We have to talk about ramblings. the foundation, too. Exactly. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the foundation. I want to talk to you about your association with other festivals. Yes. I want to talk to you about that entire part, because it has all evolved, yes, it let's has. say, from those early days. So firstly, maybe the foundation. Tell me about the foundation. Well, you know, we were successful. We were very successful in our early years. The second year, I have to admit, I got too ambitious. We had, the, we had one of the best lineups we've ever had, but I spent too much money. So we lost money the second year. And then Mary Cannon, who was the assistant festival director, and basically she was, she had, you know, she was the business person. I was kind of the artistic director, you know. But I mean, I, so we cut back. We did a, we did a, we ended up that year, I think, owing Summerfest $20,000, I think we were 20000 in debt. And so, okay, all right, we can handle this. Just cut back on our spending at this going into 83, because we lost $20,000 in the second year. But it was a successful festival artistically. We had a great lineup. And uh, so we cut back 10% across the board in 83, and then we just went through a whole series of years where we kept success until 1987 when we heard the year of the flood where we had, I had to shut the festival down on Saturday night at eight o'clock because it was raining so hard. And the drainage down at the festival site at that point was not really great. You had huge puddles of water a foot deep or more, wires, you had people, you had lightning and winds and people, the people were separated from their kids. Their kids were in one area and the mom and dad were in others. It was a nightmare. And then the second night, um, we also, uh, had to move, we had rained the second night also, uh, and had to move a lot of the main acts into the amphitheater uh, down on the festival grounds. So that year we only had like 67,000 people, but our attendance kept growing, and we kept making money, and we were watching our spending, made some response, we had a good board, and we were making responsible decisions. And so the issue comes up about what are you, you gonna do with this money? Because when we first set the mission of the festival, we had to go as a goal in maybe an Irish community center here, a bricks and mortar type center. As the festival went on though, but that became less important. And what became more important was the legacy that we were setting up in terms of what we were, where we leaving a legacy for people and their families and their children. And so, but we just kept getting more successful and we ended up having, you know, money. And um, so people were asking us, well, I, you know, what are you going to do with this money? And we were asking ourselves the same question. So I said, well, we should really, th we've been very successful, and it's basically, you know, the community that's been backing us that's responsible for our success, in, and, and the people in Chicago. So we said, so we need to do something. So I, um, 
I put a proposal together for foundation and I approached a uh, friend, an attorney friend of mine downtown who incorporated us in 1992. And uh, we set it up uh, that 25% uh, that of this net surplus of the festival in a good year would go to the foundation. And that was what we did until, you know, the point at which we weren't getting the kind of returns many years later. Um, so we were able to build up a nice uh, uh, bit of funds in the foundation. We have three categories, community, civic, and cultural. And uh, we try to give away, I don't know how much we've given away, Colleen would know. I'm probably thinking it's probably 600,000 or more dollars. And not only to people here, but we've, we've provided seat up money for festivals here in the States. The cultural cell in Ornmore and Galway. The uh, Francis McPeak School of Music in uh, Northern Ireland. Um, Arma Reimers supported them. So we've done a number of things in Ireland. We've supported a number of festivals they're starting up or needed some startup money. We, we, we provided startup money for the Tommy Makem International Song Festival, where when I went over and met with Peter, uh, you know, Tommy's n nephew, and got that, Tommy, that ran for three years. Um, so we did a lot of good, and um, and we can show people what we've done with it. But we also supported local and civic, non-Irish, non-Celtic organizations here. You know, people that work with, you know, um, the underprivileged uh, or the disabled or reading programs or, you know, um, so we've supported a lot of those. But And, uh, and, and so we have a separate foundation board. It's a separate corporation, and we have our own boards. And there are just a couple of others, and I'm going to, they keep coming into my head as you speak there because you, I find it so entertaining listening to you. Um, your involvement with other festivals, you mentioned there that you would have given seed funding to other festivals, but you are like the go-to festival in North America. So yeah. you have a responsibility, of course, in that, yeah. but your responsibility to the other festivals, I get the impression a lot of them come to you for advice, direction, and association. Yeah, and that's true. There, was, there are two different thoughts about our success. Some people thought we shouldn't help other festivals. And I love competition, but I also love, I love it when people are putting their own um, money on the line and their own time and effort to do things that are consistent with what we're doing and promoting the culture and the music. And so most of the festivals that came here were not festivals that had staff they weren't paying anybody uh, I was I wasn't getting any money at all maybe the I think the third year they started paying me because I had a full-time job at the time too so and I and they paid me I think fifteen thousand dollars for a year for eight years or something until I stepped down but so I always believed if their if their mission is the same as ours why are we not working with them and helping them and supporting them because to me, that just enlarges your audience, enlarges your future. And that, but not everybody thought that way. Some people say, well, we shouldn't be helping them. They're competition. And fortunately, most of the board saw, saw it the way I did. And a lot of festivals were coming here that either were starting a festival or had started one. One, diff one particular festival sent somebody to here, and this is in a personal account that she gave me of her first trip here. She said, I was sent by our board to come to this festival and I got here the first day, and on the second day, I went to the lake and sat on the rocks and cried. <laughs> and and uh, but they're a very successful festival today, for and um, a wonderful event. 
And so we've always been open and um, and I keep thinking back to when the, fe the Italian festival helped us and they were so generous with their time and their resources. And how could you not want to help somebody else that was doing, basically had a passion for the same things that you do. And so in 1998, I think it was 98, it could have been early 99, we decided to invite our sister festivals at the time to come here to meet us and to have, you know, kind of share, share, the, share our stories, share our problems, share our solutions, what challenges and opportunities are we facing, and tell us your story. And that's when we started to build this large family that, that of 25 festivals that's going to be here this weekend. And we had seven festivals here from out of, uh, from around the country that, that year. But we didn't do it again until the 25th anniversary. Then we invited our, that was the second one we had here in Milwaukee. We invited people in. We had a huge dinner at a hotel down there at the airport. We had Gaelic Storm come in um, and entertain that night. And we had a whole large group of festivals came in. And then we met during the, during the day at, at the Hyatt, brought in speakers, and we had work, different workshops and roundtables that people could go attend just discussing their own issues. So then Nan Krasinski from Pittsburgh says, well, I want to do this. So okay, then so we're off to Pittsburgh. Well, then who was next? Uh, I think it might have been Allison in Dublin, Ohio. Then it was Chris Dart in Michigan. Then it was Kelly in Kansas City. Then it was the guys in, then went Mike in, uh, in, but in the meantime, 2007, we went to Celtic Colors. And then we went to uh, Ireland in 2010. We went to Scotland, I think it was 2013 or 14, with Lisa, you know, working with Lisa on that. And um, then we went to, uh, we've been, we went back to Nova Scotia two years ago in 2016 to uh, the uh, Nova Scotia Music Week in Truro. But all the while, it goes back to our commitment to get out, to be the leader, to be on the edge, to meet the people of influence. And that's where Harry Bradshaw was important to us, and Nicholas was important to us, because they started making contacts. And our cultural people who were not, I, I, I've, I've never been involved too much on the political end and the cultural end. We have people that did that, and I, I love focusing on the music and the entertainers. But where they needed me to be somewhere, or I, I would be there and helping. But then um, when um, we would go somewhere, we'd have three or four people, and I'd be out looking at music or showcases. They'd be out meeting with government people or potential sponsors. And so as the festival grew, and the popularity of Irish music grew, we had, we developed this huge network in Ireland, Scotland, Northern Ireland, even in Europe, and, and agents and bands that were touring that could come back and we could get feedback from. But it got to the point where when I was first booking the festival, we were booking people we'd never seen before. But after 10 years, it was hard to put people on a big stage if, if you hadn't, somebody hadn't seen them, you know. So that developed uh, over the years. So we, we, we expressly, we expressly made a, it was a, it was a mantra of ours that we would go out and number one, um, we would expand our, our access to resources to, and, and the need to develop partnerships and contacts and friendships. And at the same time that, that extended into the whole, just the festival site all the festivals, whether they were Celtic or Irish, 
And that's what we did. And then we started going to the festivals and bringing exhibits there and uh, developed this uh, wonderful family of people who are motivated by the same convictions that all get together this weekend and have fun and have a passion for the same thing. And you've added a relationship with Tradfest in Dublin as well in recent years. Right. Well, we started going to Tradfest probably, you're in your 13th year? I would say our seventh year. Um, but we were there and watching it grow too. We were seeing what changes they made from one year to the next. And then um, four years ago, Martin invited me to be on a panel, uh, and I was uh, I was on a panel, and, and we in turn were promoting it with the other festivals at these conferences that we were having, and so you'd pick up, you know, I think five years ago you had three or four U.S. festivals there. Now a whole bunch more have been there. They don't go every year, but uh, I, I so I've been there a couple times but we've we started having somebody there every year just like we do at Celtic Colors and uh, so we started developing these contacts and the thing that we've noticed is that you can tell people all you want about Milwaukee but unless you come and see it you're not going to fully appreciate what it's like and especially after we started in 2005 we had our 25th anniversary we started the Celtic Grit stage and that was the year that we decided to add a new stage that would celebrate what the sons and daughters of Ireland have contributed to the United States in the way of music so we had music from every era we had a civil war band playing um, Irish music they were marching around with their old instruments we had a Bing Crosby knockoff doing we had uh i think mick was doing something from harrigan and hart that year mick maloney we had uh tommy and liam separate tommy and liam separately that year um and uh, we had uh georgium cohan uh show to co cover the turn of the century music so we had every era of american music up to the 50s and 60s and that started the Celtic Root stage. The next year was our first Nova Scotia. Oh, the next year was Celtic Women. And then, then we started uh, Nova Scotia. And then, so that started this whole showcase thing. And of course, we were, you know, in, in the meantime, we're out at Celtic Colors, we're at Celtic Connections, we're at Tradfest. We're looking at, Tradfest developed a little later, but Celtic Colors was, um, my first year there was 2001. And Celtic Connections, I think, I was probably a number of years after that was my first trip to Celtic Connections. But I think we've had people pretty much there ever since then. And our people, uh, you know, they're board members usually or they're involved in the entertainment committee. And they come back, they have to write a report, they have to, because we're basically using our resources to get them there. So that's how that all developed. And then, but once the key was in getting people to come here, because when Nova Scotia sent somebody here in 2006, they had to go back and they said, look, this is something you need to do. And then we got Marcel and Brian Doherty, who was a very close friend of mine, who were two key people in Nova Scotia that, that helped. We had four, four Nova Scotia showcases. One was actually Atlantic Canada, but so we've had a Galway sh showcase. We had a cross-border showcase, uh, Jerry Donegal showcase. Um, we had a bluegrass showcase. And so... And now we've got Galway set up and uh, next year, Donegal, the year after that. Now we're talking to Scotland about another one. We've had a mini Scottish showcase and a larger Scottish showcase. And these are all focused 
on one particular area where you might take one of the high-profile bands, put them on a main stage, but the others would be playing in the Celtic Roots tent where it's a real draw and it's real intimate, maybe 1,500 people at max. Very successful. But now we have people coming to us and there's kind of stacking up yes. where for years and years we had to beg and, you know, beg and barter to get people to come and visit us to see what it was all about. You seem to me, anyway, to be as enthusiastic as ever about Milwaukee Irish Fest. Yeah, well, I am, but I'm also, as a leader, I'm also cognizant of the need to knowledge transition a lot of what I know. So after the last festival, in addition to my health issues, after the last festival in 2017, at our wrap-up session, I, I got up and I said, look, um, my goal is to... Um, my goal is to bring somebody in as co-coordinator, co-chair of the Entertainment Committee, and I want to set an example to a lot of you who have been here from the start that you need about thinking about sharing what you know with other people. Now, a lot of that has happened vicariously because people are raising their families and they, they hold on to that, that role in their festival with a tight, pretty tight grip. They don't want anybody else coming in unless it's their family, you know. So I said, look, this is what I have to do. This is the mark of a good leader, is to transition the knowledge and to be willing to share it with somebody. So I, you'll, so John Daly is the guy who came in, and I said, John, you're willing. You've been a stage manager for 25 years. You're a good business person. You're, you're, a, you know, you're a friendly personality. You're smart. You're presentable. And so John agreed to be the co-chair, and in my agreement was that after the 2018 festival, I would step down as chair. Well, after the 2018 festival, John says, this is a lot, Ed. This is a lot to learn. And so I said, well, I'm going to st stick around. But then we went out and we're, we're adding another member to the committee who I think has the maturity and the knowledge of not only Celtic music and Irish music, but music in general. And he's a musician and an, an attorney, and plays in two bands. Um, one's an Eagles tribute band, <laughs> and he plays in my son's uh, my son's Irish band. Anyway, that was that was a big move for me. But I had to face it. I had to face the reality, just like I when I stepped down as director of the festival. I can tell you when that happened. It was in 1990. Was our tenth year. And we had all these new things we introduced in our tenure, tons of new activities, the Lilliput marketplace. We had a we had a 60-foot Gulliver carved out of styrofoam that we put on the beach up on the north end. And uh, uh, we had tons of things we did that year. And it was a horrible year weather-wise. And, and, um, and at the end of our tenth year, we were on Monday cleaning up. We have, we have a week to set up and one day to tear down. It was raining. We were in, everybody was depressed. And after every year, what I'd write, I'd write all the coordinators a personal letter and note. I was so depressed I didn't do it in 1990. And then in 1991, I was at my office. It was about, and I was doing all the immigration petitions at the time. So if we had visa issues, they weren't as bad as they were now, but I had to, I had to work with the American Federation of Musicians, get the letter, and then I had to work with the file of petitions, but it was a lot easier back then. Sometimes we went right down to the wire, but we had our senator and congressman help. It wasn't as bad as it is now. About three weeks, no, two weeks before the festival, I was Monday morning, I sit in my office, I started having pains in my chest. So I said, oh, this isn't good. I mean, that, you know, obviously. So I went, checked myself into Frederick Hospital, and they did an EKG, and they said, you, 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 your heart is fine. 
you're just stressed out. So I decided that's it. I'm either gonna, I'm either gonna step down or it'll die. And so that's when I stepped down as director. And I said, I, you know, um, then we hired Jane Anderson, who was director for 20 years. So that was a big decision for me, but I would literally would have died had I tried to continue to run both the festival and have a full-time job. But last year, I wanted to set an example for our people, our volunteers, that you know, nothing is forever. No one, per this festival will run. It's not dependent on any one person for its success. And so that's what we're in the process of doing and encouraging now. It was going to be my final question to you. The festival and its future, will it run, will it innovate as it has done in the last 40 years, 38 years? Yeah, I, I, I think it's harder to innovate because, first of all, we used to be out there, we were the only ones out there looking for talent, and we were the only ones at Tradfest, we were the only ones at Celtic Colors, we were the only ones at Celtic Connections. Now all the other festivals are there, and I think that's fantastic. And part of it was what we did to help help them get to know all these people you know but it's been good for us I continue to believe that the success of all these festivals that operate in the United States now especially the ones that participate in our organization will continue to enlarge the market which will benefit all of us you know and they all do different things they all have neat ideas they all have things we can steal from each other to help improve our own event and that's a big plus you know but I think I think we've got enough talent creative people um, in, in the wings, and we're building a good farm team for our younger people in the way of music and dance. And um, I'm a very optimistic. The challenges we have are mostly financial, and, and uh, when you run an event like ours, actually, we have the same challenge as a festival that runs and has 6,000 people, because you have, you have to raise the money, you have to pay all your expenses, and you have to end up, you know, making more than what you spend. And so, uh, just like happened with Nan in Pittsburgh this year, they had rain on Saturday, but their whole grounds, festival grounds flooded. Monagahela River overflowed on Sunday, and they were giving a warning of it so they could get everything they needed to get out of there, uh, pull the, and, um, all their supplies and anything else they needed to pull off the grounds. But the water was up to the top of an eight-foot tent. It was six feet high, so the whole grounds were flooded. So we're all vulnerable, all of us, no matter how big or small, to the fact that weather is so dominant for us. And if we have a bad year, and there are two solutions. One, you can extend your festival like we did the Thursday night, which gives you another evening. Um, or you can buy weather insurance and you can buy it just for those peak hours of the festival that you think you're going to have your biggest crowds. We have never done that. But uh, one festival there's one festival I know does it every year, without question. They buy rain insurance and they do it during their peak hours. They collect it one year out of nine. So you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's like buying any insurance. But what I did when I started the festival I didn't even know I did this, and John Meyer said, yeah, you did this, Ed. I went to the Farmer's Almanac when I picked the weekend, and I looked, I looked at what the average high and low were and what the average precipitation was. And there was only one other festival running at the time besides Summerfest, and I looked at the third week in August. I figured, well, the kids aren't in school yet. Now some of them are in college, not the grade school. And I know that the average weekend, and it's still this way, the average weather on the third week in August, the high is 82, average is 82 on the high, and the low is 68. And there's a 33% chance of precipitation. So I picked that date. 
and um, and that was it. Right, I'm going to ask you one final question, and it's an unfair one, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What do you think has been the greatest achievement of Milwaukee Irish Fest? Well, I think the greatest achievement was my greatest achievement was giving it back to my, to my mom and dad because I, they were so proud of what we had accomplished. My greatest achievement was that my mom and dad were living to enjoy this. And that's why we named the archives after my dad and my, and my mother, really. So that was one of my greatest achievements and the thing I'm one of the most proud of. The other thing I'm proud of is that, that we have consistently stayed to our mission. And our mission was always, always to leave a legacy in the bloodstream of our youth. And we've been very successful about that. If you look at what's happened and all the different organizations that have spun off here in, the, in this community from Irish Fest, um, some of which we have a Cura Club, we have a we have a, um, a book club, we have a genealogy club, we have uh, uh, all kinds of things that, that you know a whole ton of bands and whole ton of dancers. So that accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. So there was never a goal to be, we never set out nor did we dream that we would be one of the premier international festivals in the world. Um, that's a byproduct of the talent and the skill and the dedication and passion of the people we have. But for me, it's how we impacted my own family it's, and it's how we impacted the community and how we've enriched the lives of people and enlarged the future for people um, by what we've done. Edward, it's a pleasure to speak with you. It's a greater pleasure to listen to you. Thank yeah, you so much. Yeah. Okay, thank you. It's so good to see you and so good to have you back in Milwaukee and you've done so much and you've, um, you in your own right have made such a huge contribution to music in Ireland, so it's an honor to have you here. That was the wonderful Edward sharing what were his proudest moments, including leaving a legacy for the next generation. I don't think there's a soul who can deny that immense legacy. Ed left a better world behind him, and we are so grateful to him for that. I'm also very honoured to have spent time in his company and know that we all continue doing what we do in honour of Ed. Ed is not just the sort of man you meet every day. He was that rare combination of passion and ability. We can all take comfort that Ed was so focused on the effects that he had on his team and his family that those left behind are empowered to continue to achieve great things themselves. Ed Ward was the type of man who makes me proud to be Irish and so happy and grateful for the life that Irish music has given me and for the fact that it has allowed me to spend time with people like him. Ed Ward, you were a giant of a man. You are sadly missed. Rest in peace. I've been Kieran Hanrahan, coming to you from the Oliver St. Gogarty pub in Dublin, in Ireland. Thanks a million for listening. Around, come into the sound, forget you down, feel the air.